Okay, I'm not Peter Finch, and a movie reference might miss some of our audience, but here we go. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Oh, wow. You're clearly upset. I hear your tone and the way you're stressing on the various words. I also hear some words that tell me that you're upset. Now, I'm not the best monotone in the world, but, but here we go with my best uh, horrible text-to-speak impression. I'm mad as hell that I'm not going to take this anymore. What do you get from that? And now we've lost some of the tone information. All we have are the words. And that makes it a very interesting problem to do sentiment analysis because humans are good to, to some extent at getting things from the tone and to a good extent from, to getting things from the words. But how good are machines at this sort of thing? The way I would interpret is, I mean, so you use words like I'm mad as hell, uh, which clearly states that you are upset. Uh, you are explicitly stating that you are upset. So in some ways, that's an easier clue to detect that you are upset. On the other hand, in most cases, people don't explicitly say how they feel. They might say things in a more subtle way. Like, I'm at a party, I'm having ice cream. You know, you can detect that they're happy, just even though they're not saying that they're happy there. But that is something that humans are good at. You know, we bring in the world knowledge, we bring in the context, and we can make the connections to statements like that to emotions. But uh, for machines to do that is much more challenging because now you're not using explicit emotion words. You're using words that are associated with certain emotions, and they have to try and capture that. That little exercise we just went through used an incredibly emotional moment from the 1976 movie Network. Obviously, we've come a long way in the 40 years since then, not just in terms of movies, but in also how we communicate. Look, for millennia, we lived in an analog world where in-person or handwritten communications were the only option. It was a time when, to paraphrase Mark Twain, if you had more time, you would have written a shorter letter. Eventually, we got the telegraph and then the telephone, and that fundamentally changed how we communicate, and that has continued to evolve. Email and social media have arrived on the scene, which are now increasingly being supplanted by various forms of messaging. This message is often much shorter in nature, and this is the important bit. It can potentially happen without any context. As a result, to succeed with messaging, today's companies need to understand more than just the words on a screen. They also have to figure out the emotions and the intentions behind them. And for a machine to figure that out, it's, it's no small feat. Today, we'll be diving into one of the most interesting aspects of speech and text analysis, looking beyond the words and trying to understand the emotions of what's being said. We'll be hearing all about ways to analyze words for business purposes that go well beyond what you can do with a dictionary. I'm John Pryor, and welcome to the Impact Podcast. The February 23rd, 2017 issue of Esquire magazine had an article entitled, All Radiohead Songs Are Sad, But This Graph Shows Which Are the Saddest. That analysis of the degree of sadness per song was done via an emotion lexicon. It was published by Canada's National Research Council. And one of the key thinkers behind that work is Saif Mohammed, and it's our pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome, Saif. Thank you for having me. Uh, Why don't you introduce yourself, give us your background, and tell us what you've been working on. So I am a senior research scientist at NRC, National Research Council Canada. I've been working here for about six to seven years, I think. I have my background in computer science and specifically computational linguistics or natural language processing as it's known. 
I have specific interests in uh, sentiment analysis and emotion analysis, looking to see, can we give machines the ability to detect sentiment and emotions from text? But I'm also interested in uh, social media analytics, how to get good machine learning data by crowdsourcing, and I dabble a bit in information visualization. So you've published a great deal on a wide range of topics. So my goal today is to take some of the key areas you've worked on, and I'm going to try to make it real for our audience of CEOs and entrepreneurs that are looking to build solutions and that'll allow them to better interact with their customers in this new way. It'd be helpful, I think, as a start, if you could define for me what you mean by creative language. That's, that's a very difficult question. Uh, but like many things, I like to talk about it in terms of examples. So when a lot of people think about creative language, the first thing that comes to our mind is things like a poet or short story writers or novelists or maybe you know, people who create ads in a compelling language. But really, if you think about it, a lot of the everyday language that all of us use is fairly creative. And uh, because we use things like metaphors, we use sarcasm, we use uh, hyperbole, we try and coerce and convince and persuade others using languages. We make new phrases all the time, like noun compounds, like soccer mom or, or mountain bike. We use opposing polarity phrases, you know, where you got one positive word and one negative word together, like dark chocolate or happy accident. Interesting creations. We do that all the time. And so I, I try not to define creative language as much as say that, you know, a lot of the language that everybody uses is creative. And one of the things about this creative language is that it has emotional impact. And that's why I'm particularly interested in it. So what we could do then is let's work our way through some of the basics. And I think we'll start with just words and sentiment. So okay. what does that mean to you as you kind of think about, obviously, just yielding kind of positive or negative thoughts? So when I started this work, I thought before we go into understanding whole sentences or documents and the sentiment involved there, I thought, uh, let's start with a more basic thing. Let's, you know, let's start with words. It seems easier to look at that. And so until then, a lot of the work looked at words that expressed sentiment, you know, like great, excellent, poor, terrible. And some of the early work that we did here at NRC was to uh, create a sentiment lexicon similar to this, but to have it larger in scope where we also include words that are associated with sentiment. So like party is associated with happiness, death is associated with sadness, but these are words that are not expressing sentiment, but they're associated with sentiment. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the language that we use, oftentimes we are not explicitly saying how we feel. We are using other words that indicate what our sentiment is. And so creating a lexicon like this that captures word sentiment associations is particularly useful. So let me see if I have this, this definition right. So when I was an early young programmer, I was actually writing systems code. Mm -hmm. People thought I was a systems programmer, but now I was writing middleware operating system layer things versus applications. If someone's going to do an application of text analysis, some of the systems level work is this work you've done to create a lexicon that mm -hmm. they would then use as, something, as one of their resources. It, do, do I have that right? And can you explain that just a bit more? Absolutely. So uh, I think that the word level uh, resources that we've created, and we've created a fair number of them and they have different features, but primarily they're used as a tool in a larger system that looks at uh, whole sentences or whole customer reviews or tweets and is trying to determine what sentiment or emotion is expressed there. So of course, a word in different contexts can convey different sentiments and emotions. 
And so that can change. But a lot of the words have a, have a strong bias towards a certain sentiment or emotion. And that's what this lexicon gives. I see. And the sources can be tweets and social media. Is there any restrictions in terms of what could be fed into this? The lexicons that we created, a lot of them are fairly generic in the sense that they deal with English language. You have a lot of common English terms used in these lexicons, and so they are widely applicable to English texts. Some of our focus has also been on social media texts, so we include entries that are social media specific, like, you know, hashtag words, conjoined words, like love you, mom, all you, all in one word, creative and interesting spellings there, and so on. So, so those lexicons will be additionally helpful when you're dealing with social media. If you're looking at things like call center and things like that, or financial documents or medical documents, then you're starting to get into a little bit more and more into specific technical jargon and where this, this general lexicon might not be as useful or it might give you a certain start, but then you want to create an additional lexicon that is catering to your specific domain. So the more you create these uh, lexicons for your particular domain, the better your system will be. Uh, some of our work has also been on, can we create these lexicons from text automatically and so if we take a large amount of call center text and we have find some creative ways to create these lexicons from that text, then that lexicon will be that much more useful. Interesting. So a call center where you know someone's calling up and they're either asking for help or they're angry, you would have a different lexicon based on that type of, of verbal interaction. Yes, I, th I think that makes a lot of sense. I think it makes sense to have a good general purpose lexicon like the one that we've got, but then to build an additional auxiliary lexicon specifically for the domain because certain words can be used differently in particular domains. And so you want to get that right. All right. So let's just take it to the next level beyond positive and negative, uh, And we'll go to emotions. And when I was looking at one of your papers, in one case, there was uh, six emotions. In other cases, there are eight emotions. And all I was thinking about was the movie Inside Out, where I know they spent a lot of time with okay. psychologists on how to make an interesting movie and have those sets of emotions. So how yeah. did you end up landing on emotions? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And in fact, it's a, controversial, hotly debated topic in the psychology community even today. So uh, when I started looking at this six years back and I said, okay, let's create a large word emotion association lexicon and we'll do this by crowdsourcing and ask, get a lot of annotations. The first question was, which emotions do we focus on? And if you look around on the web, you see something like, oh, people are capable of fairly fine-grained emotions. And that could be like some people have come up with numbers like five, 600 different emotions. So that seems pretty big and uh, maybe a little larger to handle right away. So I thought, uh, surely there must be work on looking at, uh, are there some emotions that are more basic than others? Are there some emotions that are more important than others? Uh, and indeed there is. So it turns out, uh, this all goes back, uh, way back to Darwin, who first said that, hey, you know, our facial expressions are mirrors of certain emotions, and uh, there's some universality to it, and we've got like, you know, a few different kinds of emotions that are universally expressed. But as time went on, people said, hey, wait a second, people in different cultures express emotions differently. I don't know about this universality thing. And then in 1960, there was a guy called Paul Ekman. He's a bit like a Sean Connery kind of character. He comes out of the woods of Papua New Guinea and says, hey, people, look, I've gone around the whole world showing people pictures of six different emotions, people expressing six different emotions. And wherever I go, everybody is clearly says, yes, this picture is for anger, this picture is sadness, and this picture is joy. And even here in New Guinea, where they've not interacted with people from the West or anywhere else, but they still agree. So his claim 
was that these six emotions, joy, sadness, fear, so on, are more universal and more basic than all others. And, and this sort of energized the community a whole lot. And a lot of work got into looking at these sort of basic emotions. But of course, you know, in any two psychologists will not agree with each other. Soon you had other theories saying that, no, maybe there are these eight, maybe there are these seven, maybe there are 20 basic emotions. So that went on for a while. And in 1996, uh, there was a young undergrad student here, just here in Waterloo. Her name was Lisa Barrett. And uh, she did some experiments that started poking holes in this Paul Ekman theory of basic emotions. And she's now a distinguished professor of psychology. It's somewhere down south in the U.S. Uh, and has done some tremendous work. And uh, there's a more and more research coming out saying that, hey, wait a second, maybe there is no such thing as basic emotions Maybe all of these emotions are important. Uh, and so that's a, it, it's a controversial thing that more people are studying even now. So it's not clear if that are basic emotions and what they are. Well, we, but we clearly have gone from uh, I like this, which was positive, to party, which you implied is a, another way to get to a positive feeling, right. to now the next level of depth of emotions. So I think it's important now... Um, as we part of think about machine learning, it's obviously both the model of the data and, and you know, it's the training of the system. And companies collect lots of data and you know, they train an engine. But in this case, you've actually done that training in the creation of this lexicon. Tell me how you did that uh, and, and how you got that to be something that you think is really rock solid. So one of the work that we did was uh, with the NRC Emotion Lexicon, where we created a large word emotion association lexicon. And we decided to do this by crowdsourcing. And one reason for that is that uh, in certain applications, what we want is to determine how regular everyday people interpret and use language, in this case, emotions. And so we didn't want to ask experts or linguists or particular people like that who might have an idea of how language should be used because sometimes that can be different from how it is used. And so crowdsourcing was particularly appealing. So a, a key question is how do you make sure somebody sitting in their basement is answering uh, correctly to your questions, right? Uh, and so one, one of the quality control measures we use is uh, we intersperse the questions with what we call goal questions. These are goal, goal questions are nothing but the same sort of questions, but some data that we have internally annotated. So about two to 5% of the data we internally annotate. We say this word is associated with this emotion. This word is associated with this emotion and so on. And that's interspersed with the other questions. So as soon as an annotator, uh, so when an annotator is answering the questions, they don't know which one is the goal, but they are told that these goal questions exist. And if they answer any of these goal questions wrong, then they're immediately told, hey, this is the correct answer. And here's the reason. So you might want to improve annotation of these kinds of questions. And if somebody gets too many of these goal questions wrong, then we say, okay, maybe this annotation is not for you. Thank you very much. We still pay them the amount that we- But you toss out, the, you toss out there. We Excellent. toss out all of the responses. Excellent. So you mentioned earlier about cultural differences. So as you're training, are you creating different lexicons that might be used in different cultures? Or how does that, and, and I'm viewing this as a whole- view of multi of language and translation. It's just another flavor of that. Is, is that Absolutely. what happens? That's a very good question. And there are things that are different across languages, but most of our work has been focused on, let's capture what is common across the different cultures. Uh, so, so we identify commonly used words. And for most of these words, the 
the emotions tend to be stay more or less the same through across cultures. And we've got some results to show that that does happen. And other people have done studies too. So I would say that's like, you know, five to 10% variation uh, across cultures in terms of the change in sentiment of words across cultures. So we're much farther along than we, the technology gets us, uh, it's probably more, you said 5%, yeah. I'm thinking the old 80-20 rule, it works. It works right, quite well right, as is. Right. Okay. And, and I just wanted most bang for my buck, right? So if I'm creating a lexicon and if I create it just for a particularly small group of community, then it's used only there and not used anywhere else. I'd rather create a, a resource that can be widely used. And so our annotation was done by, U.S. annotators, and we said that they should be native speakers of English. And so ideally, it applies mostly to U.S. English-speaking text, uh, these kinds of associations. But then how different is that from U.S. speaking English in, uh, in Europe or the rest of the world? You know, the same things get you a long way. And then if you really want to focus on cultural differences, then one can do specific studies for that as well. Sure. So I don't want to necessarily go down a rat hole, um, but we have these emotions and we're learning a lot of things from these words. What was missing uh, when Microsoft unleashed Tay on the world? They had the information. They know things are good or bad. I mean, I don't think there's an emotion of racism, but was there a missing objective? Like, don't be racist? Or the, what, what, was the, what was your sense of, of kind of what went wrong there? Uh, so there are two different ways we can answer that question. One, more specifically to that instance, uh, is that uh, these are all machine learning systems. They learn from some amount of data that they had initially. And in this case, it learned from additional data based on how it was interacting with people. So if you feed it more and more racist data, it'll learn to be racist. Uh, and so that goes into this whole problem of uh, how do we make sure, you know, algorithms, we might think they are unbiased and uh, fair and all that, but in reality, they're not. They are usually learning models from data created by humans. And if you feed them biased data, racist data, they will gurgle out the same material right back at you. But also to answer this question in a more general sense, it's very hard to detect sentiment and emotions at sentence level. There are many challenges uh, because first of all, there are a number of problems. What emotion are we looking at? Are we looking at the sentiment or emotion of the speaker? Are you trying to determine the sentiment or emotion of somebody who's reading this text? Or are you just looking at this language? Is this language positive or negative? Interesting. So the, I get the words and I see the challenges with the sentences. I was actually quite fascinating when you actually looked across some literary works mm -hmm. and you were tracking, I think, joy, trust, and fear. And I guess I'm not surprised that the fear arc in Frankenstein basically increased right. from start to end or in as you like it, it was high and roller coasted, but ended up high again. What's your view then what a company should do in terms of where they should focus? How, I'd like to get, I think we're going to get to the point of a transaction, which is typically thought of as something short running is going to be a long running transaction, maybe through purchase, delivery, use and capturing lifetime emotions of a customer. Do you think, you think we'll get to that point at some point? And that's really maybe away from your lexicon and more to just, well, maybe it is. It's, maybe it still stays in the lexicon. I'm not sure. What, what, what's your thoughts? So uh, as you said, and as I said before, detecting sentiment and emotion from an individual tweet or an individual sentence is fairly tricky. And, uh, you know, sometimes we get it and sometimes we don't. And usually you need a lot of context and world knowledge. It makes it very hard. However, what works very well is if you're making these sentiment and emotion judgments and inferences from large amounts of data, so let's say you're looking at uh, all the tweets 
that are talking about Donald Trump or the iPhone or the McDonald's. Uh, so you've got tens of thousands of tweets, if not more, and these tweets are changing over time. Uh, and so you can detect, oh, at this particular slice of time, uh, the, the support for Donald Trump was 70% or maybe 70% of the tweets were positive towards Donald Trump. But as time went on and then uh, post-presidency, that dropped to something like 50%. And so that uh, so that initial thing about 70% are positive or something like that, whatever the number may be, is not very meaningful. What is meaningful is when you track it over time and you have these benchmarks. So those benchmarks can be over time. So how is it today versus uh, last month or last year? Or you can look at how do people feel towards Putin in, in the US versus in Russia versus in Asia, uh, China somewhere. So when you're making judgments over large amounts of text, and you're having meaningful benchmark comparisons to say to see how things have changed across time or across region or other things, then I think you can start to make more and more meaningful inferences using sentiment analysis. And I have to thank you because in one of your presentations, you put the, uh, the Kurt Vonnegut narrative arc video. It is one of my favorites for years. And we'll make sure I put a link to that on the podcast right up. But thank you for referencing right. that because how you tell a narrative arc, what the story is, is exactly what you're talking about, whether it's a presidency or it's your like right. of McDonald's or anything. It's, it's terrific. That's great. Thanks. Right, right. Like, like a particular topic is being discussed. Let's say the pro-life movement or the gun rights. How are people discussing it over time? Uh, you know, that's interesting. And I, and I like the Kurt Vonnegut parallel because you, we can do similar sort of things in literature as well, right? So uh, I, I have interest in that sort of field as well to look at, for example, what makes for a compelling story? You know, what are the character-character interactions uh, that, that make the story great, that make everybody absorbed in the story? So there are a number of interesting things that we can look and learn over there. And from a business perspective, one might think, hey, that seems, you know, that's like a literature analysis thing. I don't care about that. But in fact, if you look at it, it's the same sort of techniques that you apply in analyzing tweet streams and other large data that a lot of these companies are interested in analyzing. Exactly. So when, when the CEO is challenging his or her product manager, what's happening across their strategy, they should be asking about what, what's happening now, but go for those long-term trends and, yeah. and, and yeah. go for sentiments and emotions and kind of build from there, no doubt. So I just want to drill down on some other fun areas. Uh, okay. Obviously, we want companies to start simple and kind of build from there. But you had early mentioned it. I just talk a little more about the challenges you're faced with and what companies are faced with, with people's use of metaphors. Oh, metaphors are particularly tricky. I've not done too much work on metaphors, but essentially what happens in metaphors is that you are taking something from, I mean, you're talk, usually people are talking about an abstract domain, and then they bring in something from a more concrete domain into the abstract domain as a sort of analogy to help improve the understanding of things. Uh, and so the little work that we've done with metaphors looked at it, uh, oh, when you're bringing things from another domain, is there more emotional impact when you use metaphors? And we found that indeed, when people use metaphors, uh, it is the sentence tends to be much more emotionally impactful than if you use a literal paraphrase uh, of that sort of thing. So for example, he shot down my arguments. So uh, let's say you're talking about uh, arguments and debates. It's a fairly abstract concept. Uh, and so suddenly we are bringing this shot down phrase into this thing, which is like, you know, it's bringing these notions of 
battle into the main of debates. Uh, and the battle concept is much more concrete. It, it has this visceral uh, emotional impact on people when you bring uh, those things in. And the cool thing about doing this sort of metaphor thing is that you are framing a topic in a particular manner. So let me see if I can recall this example, but there have been studies that have looked at, for example, how do you frame drug issues in your city? If you tell people drug is like a beast, uh, you know, you use that metaphor and then you ask them, how do you, what kind of policy do you use? Uh, would you suggest? And a lot of people suggest policies of incarceration, more budget to the police and so on. But if you frame the same drug problem in your city as a problem of a virus, it's a virus that's attacking your city, then it's a different way of framing the problem. And when they ask this people again, uh, what kind of, I mean, different set of people, but you know, that, that's okay. You ask people again, uh, what do you do now? And then they, they, because you framed it as a virus, now people are talking about, we should have more of a budget for uh, you know, education, for prevention, you know, put more money in social welfare and so on. So you can see how metaphors are a crucial way to frame particular topics and they impact how people act on things. So, so I find that to be That's perfect. And virus versus beast is quite different. Yes. So therefore, as we think of these emotions, uh, there's a range. Anger may be the middle of the range. Maybe I'm enraged on one end or I'm merely annoyed on the other. Um, right. Is that, as you begin to yield results and people kind of find the emotions within your lexicon, do they end up with like the degree, uh, I guess, a strength factor? That's, that's an excellent question. I'm particularly excited about that sort of work right now. There hasn't been any really so far, but uh, I am building resources right now that capture not just this word is associated or not with a particular emotional sentiment, but also the degree to which a word is associated with anger. Some words, or, or the degree of anger associated with words. Some words communicate a stronger intensity and some words communicate a smaller intensity. And that's the reason why there hasn't been much progress in this field, right? It's because if you ask, you need training data for this sort of thing. And if you ask people, give me a score between zero and 100 to say how, how much anger is there in this word, uh, it becomes a much harder problem now because people cannot be consistent uh, with others. You might give a word a score of 67, the same word might get a score of 79 by somebody else. So, so this is tricky and hard. And a, a way to solve this problem is if I give you two words and I ask you, which is conveying a greater degree of anger, then suddenly if I ask the same question to many people, everybody's consistent. Uh, but yeah. that is a problem nonetheless, because earlier, if you had 100 items, I needed 100 annotations. But now if I give people pairs of items, I need to give people 100 into 100 pairs. And so you can see how the required number of annotations grows up exponentially. Sure, sure. Uh, but the co-joint analysis, which I think that is, is does definitely adds a little value to that. Right. It's, no it's doubt about huge. it. It's yeah. huge. This comparative annotation where you're giving people multiple items and saying which is better is the way to go. And uh, there is a technique, a lesser known technique called best worst scaling, which tries to keep the comparative nature of the paired comparison still at hand, but yet reduces the number of annotations required to something like 200. So you're 100 items, you still get need only 200 items, but you keep, you get the whole benefits of the comparative nature. So it's called best worst scaling. And so I'm 
using that to creating to create a number of lexicons that have these intensity scores. And because we use that technique, we get very high reliability. So if I repeat the whole annotation process again, I get remarkably similar results in those fine-grained intensity scores. And that's what you want. You want scores that don't change that much. If the scores keep changing every time you ask somebody, then I can't trust that very much. So, so the future is getting here. So let me take it down the next path of the future. I mean, the Oxford English Dictionary has to add words every year. Uh, you, you mentioned soccer mom. Uh, I, I think of, of uh, absolutely not or an epic fail. So there's things to learn uh, about these noun pairs. And there's things to learn about hyperbole, which may be sarcastic. Uh, so is, is that the next range of, of learnings that, we're gonna, that we'll see? Yeah, I think more and more people are trying to address these more creative and more difficult uh, language uses uh, from a computer's perspective. Because uh, So there is a bunch of work that is coming up already, but things like sarcasm are especially challenging, right? Because it's very hard to know. Now you need to model not just the language, but you need to model the speaker much more in this situation. So if I say, John, your show is fantastic, <laughs> you know, I mean, how do you tell whether I'm being sarcastic or not? You need to know something about me, something about my listening habits, something about my preferences. And you don't get that just from that statement about John, your show is fantastic. So I think as we get, as this evolves, um, today we, we talk a lot about chatbots and, you know, we, we're trying to maybe some of the basics are making sure a chatbot's not creepy. But it's, you got to go beyond just not being creepy. We need to create some novel, some unique, some appropriate responses. And we're not going to be able to do that unless we have this understanding of what we're reading or hearing from this person we're interacting with. Absolutely. And, and the chat box might simply be a little more commonly known application, but already there is a ton of work on dialogue systems, right? So uh, we want dialogue systems not just to tell and understand uh, the facts of the matter, but also to uh, sense emotions when they're speaking to a human, for example, and convey appropriate emotions in the right time. And there is work happening right now already on looking at, for example, virtual nurses. You know, so you want to be able to have this sort of machines that can diagnose diseases and dispense medical advice to far off places where you might not have medical services. And they need to act appropriately depending on the a situation at hand. So you need, it's a, the emotions play a crucial role. There are already systems looking at elderly care, physiotherapy assistants, uh, where again, you've got these robotic systems, but they need to communicate, but they also need to act with the right emotions at different times. So you already have systems in computer gaming industry. You've got artificial characters that have to communicate dialogues with appropriate emotions. They need to sense to some extent what emotions the player of the game is bringing into the into the game when they are typing certain text. Uh, and you also have this in uh, educational applications, uh, automatic tutors, where they're trying to teach children or adults the various uh, uh, skills. And uh, one of the things is uh, you want to be sure that you have the student in the right frame of mind, because we know that if people are happy and not frustrated, then there is more learning happening. In that sort of situation. So there are a number of cases where things like, I mean, the chatbot seems almost like it has no purpose, but the underlying technology is used in all of these areas that I just talked about. 
And there are things going beyond your area of focus. People are going to take what you have done and bring that together with facial recognition and, and other elements and body language. And, and, and that will get all added to this corpus of analysis that gets done as we begin to have Absolutely. better interaction with computers and people. Yeah, multimodal techniques looking at various modalities uh, makes, makes absolute sense in different situations. Of course, I particularly focus on text because in a number of cases, if you're looking at text that is on the internet, you only have text. But in particular cases, you, as you say, you might have access to facial expressions. You might even have biosensors that look at you know, perspiration and skin conductivity to give you an idea of the emotions of the speaker. So all kinds of information. But we, I think staying for the moment with just, just the positive, negative sentiment, understanding the emotions is a very pragmatic way for companies to start. Uh, you've done some fascinating research into the color of words and generating music from words. And we'll put some links to that in our podcast, rather for those who want to understand it. But I think where we are right now is a perfect ending in terms of practical things for companies to think about okay. uh, what's available in terms of the research today that they could use they could take those lexicons and do a better job today of interacting with their customers so for that we thank you and, and i thank, thank you for you. your time it's been it's been fantastic thank you so much thank you my pleasure thank you for having me mm -hmm.